Welcome to the 371st episode of the Reading and Writing Podcast. Stay tuned for my interview with Tommy Butler, author of the debut novel, Before You Go. Stay tuned for the interview. And stay tuned after the interview for a short excerpt from the audiobook of Before You Go. The Reading and Writing Podcast is brought to you by Libro FM. Libro.fm lets you purchase audiobooks directly from your favorite local bookstore. You can pick from more than 185,000 audiobooks, including bestsellers and recommendations from booksellers. You'll get the same audiobooks at the same price as the largest audiobook company out there, but you'll be part of a different story one that supports your local community and your local bookstore. If you're new to audiobooks, they're the perfect way to get more books into your busy life. You can listen during your commute, while doing chores, walking the dog, or just relaxing at home. All you need is a smartphone and the free Libro.fm app. If you already love audiobooks and don't know what to listen to next, check out recommendations and curated lists from people who know audiobooks best, your local bookseller. Here's your special offer from the Reading and Writing Podcast. Get two audiobooks for the price of one today with your first month of membership with the code RWPODCAST at checkout. This offer is only valid for new members in Canada and the U.S., Check out Libro.fm today. Welcome back to the Reading and Writing Podcast. My guest today is Tommy Butler, author of the new novel, Before You Go. Tommy, welcome to the podcast. Thanks, Jeff. Thanks for having me. Great. Well, if someone listening hasn't heard about your debut novel, Before You Go, how would you describe the novel? Um, I, I would say the novel is about... Uh, I would say the novel is about... Why life can feel can sometimes feel so hard, even when it seems like it shouldn't, and whether there's anything we can do about it, and if not, then what? And those three questions kind of um, drive the main narrative of the, of the novel, which is about uh, a main character named Elliot Chance, who we first meet when he's nine years old, and then we follow him into adulthood, and then along with the other two main characters, Sasha and Banner, they're all grappling with those questions. And we kind of follow them as they, as they come to their own answers or try to. And then interspersed with that main story are more fanciful, short vignettes about what happens before we're born and what happens after we die and what's happening in the far future, uh, all as related to those questions and that theme. So do you remember the original idea that led you to write before you go? Yeah, it, it was, I would say it was really those three questions. Um, uh, and I think I've been asking those questions of myself as a human for a long time. And then I started asking them as a writer. Um, and rather than kind of stick with just the, um, the, 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 the quick and obvious answers, which are kind of short, you know, um, you know, life is great. You should be happy. Um, keep going. Um, I mean, those are, those are good answers. <laughs> they may be perfectly true, but they didn't leave much room for, for storytelling. So I kind of spent a lot more time with those questions and, 
and wanted to and needed to for myself as well. Um, but then I, when I started thinking about them as a writer and starting allowing my imagination to run more freely, uh, things got much more um, creative and rich and the novel started to grow. And did, were you ever concerned about kind of addressing these kind of, for the lack of a better word, kind of existential questions in, in the framework of a novel? Um, concerned, uh, concerned. What do, what do you mean, concerned? Well, um, I, I just wonder. I mean, what, did it sounds like you you um, uh, had this idea from from the very beginning of of wanting to tackle this question um, about the whole in the heart, um, and and I, I guess I'm wondering did the did the writing of the novel go as as kind of you expected or um, how did that work for you? Um, yes and no. Yes and no. I um, I definitely spend, and I always do when I'm creating something longer in particular, I spent a lot of time thinking and creating and structuring and outlining and before I wrote the first word, um, taking notes, working on characters, working on the themes. Um, so a lot of it was was building and built before I started writing. And then as I, but as, as I started writing, things, things definitely changed uh, quite a bit as well, which was in most cases a very uh, surprising, you know, pr- surprising and pleasant process, um, although it's sometimes stressful to get there. But, um, but no, I, uh, so, no, it kind of went, um, it's, you know, it went fundamentally the way I hoped it would from the first creation of it, but it certainly changed in some very, very wonderful ways along the way. Um, and I don't think, I'm not sure, I mean, concern, I, I don't think I was concerned with it. I guess, um, the cons- I mean, I don't think, um, I guess there might have been some concern about tackling some issues, um, some of the darkness in the book. But honestly, it's I'm not trying to be an expert with it, and I'm not. So mm-hmm. I really just wanted to write um, fiction and uh, kind of tackle these emotions from my own experience, the experience of people I know and not trying to be technical about it or provide clinical answers, things like that. So I kind of put that concern aside and just follow the story. Sure. Well, in the novel, you do write about this hole in the heart. Is that hole something that you've grappled with yourself? Um, yeah, I think to some extent, I mean, I think the, I think that, you know, uh, without giving too much away about what, what the hole is or what the empty space rather is, or at least what the novel comes to think of it as. Um, I think I, and I mean, most people I know, you know, we, we're searching, we search for something, we, we want more, we need more. Um, it almost seems like no matter how much you have or are given or how lucky you are, you, there's, you're kind of striving for more. And so, um, if you don't get it or if your dreams are dashed or if a love is lost or things like that happen to you in life, then, yeah, that empty space kind of rears up. Um, and it can, it can be there even when things seem fine. Um, and I think it's kind of part of being human. So what are your earliest memories of reading in books? My earliest memories of reading are probably a lot of fantasy. Um, I think I probably, yeah, I think it's fair to say that my first kind of, uh, deep dive into reading was, was pure fantasy. I was very, I was obviously very young. Uh, I read Tolkien and then everything else came after that. Uh, so much so that I think my 
if I remember correctly, it was a teacher in middle school who uh, no longer allowed me to read fantasy for the weekly or biweekly reading assignment. She she uh, banned it and she forced me to read some realistic fiction, which I think was, I'm very grateful in the end because I, I was getting stuck. Um, so as much as I love fantasy and still do, I, uh, you know, she got me to kind of go towards a broader spectrum of fiction. That's great. So do you have any plans to write your, your epic fantasy someday? <laughs> I, I, I don't think it'll be, I don't think it'll be Tolkien or, or, or Martin, but um, I would like to, I would like to dove into it. I don't know. We'll see what form it takes. I mean, I don't, um, I think the epic fantasy and the, uh, the traditional fantasy is there's so much out there now, along with, of course, Harry Potter and so forth, but maybe something with a bit, a different bent to it. Yeah. So what was your path to writing and publishing your novel before you go? Had you always wanted to be a writer? Um, subconsciously, probably yes. Um, consciously, I didn't really consider it uh, a career option. I, I, you know, it's still new to me. And I still have an old, a full career outside of writing because I've been making a living for a long time. So um, I don't think I, I, I've always loved language and story and the written word. Um, you know, I was writing poetry in high school, as maybe maybe a lot of us do, but I was certainly avid about it. Um, but then, you know, I went through my 20s. I went to law school and I'm a practicing lawyer and I, that took up a lot of headspace and time and, and, uh, and dedication. So uh, it wasn't until a bit later that I found a little more room to start writing fiction and doing some screenwriting. And then it just kind of grew. Um, it just kept growing. And so that latent, I think, desire that I wasn't perfectly aware of consciously started to grow and grow and grow. And I realized this is what I really, really love to do. And um, I just kind of tried as much as I could with the time I had to dive more and more into it over the last 10 plus years now. Um, so there's been a lot of writing going on. This book is the most recent project, of course, and it hasn't been 10 years, but I spent, you know, three years writing this book. Um, and I've had the path of publication for this book was, um, delightfully quick, although very stressfully quick. Um, you know, I've, I've, uh, done some screenwriting and published some long fiction in the past and made the efforts and haven't quite got, haven't quite gotten out there yet with those projects. And so I've certainly felt the, the intense frustration that, that a lot of us writers can feel. Um, but with this book, it was, um, it was mercifully different. Um, I, I did not have an agent, but I felt I, I sent this book around the manuscript and unlike in previous efforts, uh, I mean, it was head spinning. Uh, you know, I found my excellent agent within, I'd say 12 days. And then we had, um, you know, we had handshake deal with Harper three weeks later and it was just, so I'd say within four weeks from sending out my first letters to agents, um, the book was in Harper's hands uh, and they were running with it. So it was, it was really head spinning in, in a great way, but I didn't sleep terribly well <laughs> during those few weeks. Um, but I'm excited about it now. That's great. How do you balance your career as a lawyer with, uh, your writing and your creativity. Yeah, it's, it's a great challenge. I mean, it's been a challenge for years. I've, I've kind of come to uh, a balance with it. Um, and essentially, you know, um, my career has been as a lawyer. So that comes, that has to come first because I need to take care of my clients and pay my rent. Um, but I have also made some sacrifices in that career, <clears throat> excuse me, 
where you know I'm, I'm not necessarily trying to um, be on the Supreme Court, or and so I've kind of taken a step back when I can and made some time for the writing over the years. And you know, fortunately, it was enough to at least <clears throat> at least get us to this book. <clears throat> Excuse me. Sorry about that. Give me a moment. Well, um, so the, the challenge goes on, the balance goes on, but it's uh, it's worked. It, it's it's uh, it's hard, but it, it's worked. Great. Well, I know you participated in the Kenyan Review Writers Workshop. What was that experience like for you? <clears throat> I absolutely loved it. Um, I went twice, uh, the first time as a writer and the second time as a fellow with a fellowship. Um, and um, I really love that program. Now, this, this is the summer program, the summer workshops, which are, are put on for a week each summer. And they have them in poetry, nonfiction, and then fiction, I think uh, also essay. So I went for fiction, obviously. And um, yeah, I, I absolutely love that environment, the summer there, the, the people that you meet, um, the instruction. I mean, Nancy Zafris and Lee K. Abbott were excellent. Um, and I just still have friends from those, those experiences. And um, I, I can't say enough about them. So, and, I, and I also learned, I learned more craft. It, it wasn't just a fun, um, you know, bonding communal experience, which would have been enough in itself, but I definitely learned more craft there as well, which was, uh, which was great. And you mentioned screenplays. Have, have you, um, have you written screenplays in addition to novels? I have. Yeah. I spent, in fact, I, so I started writing long form fiction uh, some time ago, and then I had another idea for a new story, a new project. And for whatever reason, I absolutely saw it as a feature film and not as a novel. And, but I hadn't done any, screenwriting up until that point. So I, I don't want to call it a detour from fiction because I, I learned so much about storytelling um, through all my screenwriting efforts and, and self-education and workshops and, and writing. But I did spend a number of years writing screenplays and I, I still have that desire and want to do that. Um, and I ended up writing, well, three, three finished features and then um, some unfinished work as well. And one of them, uh, one of my highlights of writing up until now was when one of my screenplays won um, won the kind of annual competition at the Nantucket Film Festival, uh, which was so I got to fly out there and meet with them, and then spend some time at a, at a workshop there uh, at a colony, and I was just thrilled, and I was just elated. It was great. Um, and then after, and then kind of after that, I the next project I had, which was Before You Go, I thought, no, this is absolutely at least initially a novel. So I've got back into fiction. Um, so yeah, I've been doing, I've been doing both uh, for, for quite some time now. And how do you think the process of, of writing screenplays um, has impacted your long form fiction? Yeah, it's a, it's a great question. And it certainly has, I think, you know, the, I guess the, the, maybe the more obvious answer is dialogue um, because screenplays are more dialogue heavy. And so hopefully that helped sharpen my dialogue and, and um, make it richer. But uh, honestly, I think even an even bigger uh, influence was structuring story. Um, so I think my earlier attempts at long form fiction were uh, a little more meandering. I think one editor said they were a little episodic. Um, and then I think with when I started studying screenwriting, I realized how critical structure is to screenwriting, or at least should be <laughs> in theory. Um, <laughs> so you start, you know, you start like um, listening to Sid Field um, um, or or um, 
other other uh sorry i'm blanking on some of the names now but uh uh, it's frustrating. Anyway, so you start you start doing some study, and you start realizing that screenwriting really is uh, very very much about structure and what story even means. And um, so I think I learned what story elements are, what what uh, drives a narrative, um, and, th- and then I brought that back to my fiction. Um, and hopefully, that shows up in Before You Go. So what writing advice would you offer for listeners who are working on their own stories or novels? Um, gosh, you know, there's so, so much, right? There's, as you know, I'm sure there's just so many things and um, it can be overwhelming, but I guess if I could just cherry pick a couple and I think maybe the two that have been probably the most important for me um, are keep learning because um you know, I didn't get more, I didn't get super serious about writing, uh, about writing fiction in my early twenties and I didn't go, I didn't go get my MFA. And so I didn't start off with that, that foundation. And so for me, keep learning, keep learning, keep learning. Um, and even now, you know, you just don't stop. Um, and it's amazing to me how I look back on some of my earlier fiction and think, Oh no, this won't do. Um, because I just realized I, I, I've just kept learning. Um, and that can be frustrating. And I guess that leads to my second piece of advice, at least for myself, which is uh, keep persevering. And I know that's um, very common advice, but it's just so critical um, because you, it's just, it just will take a long time. And the frustrations of trying to put art out there, it's cliche, but you know, I've lived it myself. It's, it's, it's identity shaking at times and uh, you just have to persevere. At least that's what that's what's uh, gotten me at least to this this far. Do you ever circle back to some of those earlier projects, or do you feel like that that's kind of a that was a learning process, and you're looking ahead to new ideas? Um, uh, I do circle back, and I I am right now actually. Um, so some of that early stuff is most definitely the latter. It's most definitely okay. That was learning. My very first novel that I wrote early on, that's going to stay on the shelf, almost positive. Um, but other long form fiction I've written, I am, I am, uh, I'm resurrecting it and, and uh, opening it up. And as it turns out, changing it massively, but I'm not, I haven't given up on it. I still love it. And uh, I still love the, the spine of it, the characters and, um, and uh, I'm dedicated to, uh, and I can see how, years later with what I've now learned, how it's, how it can be great. So it's, it's kind of both. Um, some of it is going to stay on the shelf and some of it hopefully will come out again. So are you working on another novel now? I am. Yeah. Working hard on it. Um, starting up the whole process again, which is, uh, <laughs> it's interesting because now it, finally, you know, this debut is so exciting for me and it's my first, uh, well, not my first fiction ever published. There were some short stories, but this is the first big project that's going out into the world. And so you, you see this, you're at this stage of the process with this book. And yet at the same time, I'm going right back to the beginning and starting up this whole new novel. And it's kind of, uh, you have flashbacks to, okay, page one blank page. Um, it's, it's kind of <laughs> crazy, but yeah, I am absolutely doing that. So what novels or nonfiction books have you read recently that you enjoyed? Well, so I may, I may, I may not be recently. Um, not sure which one's recently, which one's not. I mean, relatively recently, I guess for me. But uh, 
And I do find that the more I, the deeper I get into my writing, the less I'm reading, which is kind of a sad byproduct. But, um, but I would ra- kind of randomly say uh, nonfiction. There's a book called um, When Breath Becomes Air, which really got me. Very powerful, beautiful. Um, I won't say too much more about it, but um, beautiful book, When Breath Becomes Air. And then um, fiction and a little more uh, kind of uh, surreal and creative and maybe not for everyone, but I absolutely loved it. There's a book called The Lost Books of the Odyssey by Zachary Mason, which are kind of these meditations, uh, alternate alternate endings, alternate stories that might have happened to Odysseus uh, in his travels. And uh, I just found it beautiful, just very meditative and beautiful. Um, and I guess I'll give you a third one. Uh, for the for lay people who want heavy science, there's a book called The Fabric of the Cosmos, which is nonfiction, which I've read at least twice now and just blows my mind. So if you're into that and you want your mind to be kind of ripped open a bit, then uh, I, I would read that. Great. Well, where can people find you online if they'd like to learn more about you and your novel before you go? Um, well, let's see. Goodreads. Um, Goodreads is a good place to go. And then I guess, uh, you can go to tommybutlerwriter.com, um, which has a little bit up there at this point about me and the book. Um, and we'll probably have more in the future. Great. Well, again, we've been speaking with Tommy Butler, author of the new novel, Before You Go. The novel is available now, so go buy a copy. And Tommy, thanks for doing this interview. Great. Thanks so much, Jeff. I appreciate it. Great. Thank you. And now stay tuned for a short excerpt from the audiobook of Before You Go by Tommy Butler, narrated by George Newbern, published by Harper Audio and available wherever audiobooks are sold. In a room that is not a room, with walls that are not walls, and a window that is not a window, Miriam considers her handiwork. The finished form lies on a table that is not a table, illuminated by a divine light that Miriam dialed to peak radiance so that she could tend to the last delicate touches. The brass call it the vessel because it is both the container into which the travelers will pour themselves and the ship that will bear them on their journey. Miriam prefers a different name, one she believes the travelers themselves will use, Humana Corpus, the human body. It's good, she thinks. Right? Anyone can see that it's good. Everything the brass asked for and more. The blueprints were detailed, and Miriam followed them precisely, adding her own flourishes where the brass had allowed her some creative leeway. She is particularly fond of the splash of color in the irises and, for some unknown reason, the spleen. Yes, she decides, it is good. Very good, she says aloud, though her voice is no more than a whisper. The words seem hesitant to emerge as if the lingering doubt within her were a pair of human hands tugging them back, imploring them to wait until they are sure. Her internal dialogue is interrupted by Jollis, who appears in the doorway with a hopeful, eager air. He looks around the room, noting the stray bits of cloud in the corners, the row of brightly colored bottles on the shelf. When he sees the body, his typically discriminating aspect slips into one of guileless wonder. Miriam, wow! A laugh escapes him. 
It's magnificent. Do you think so? Absolutely. He moves in for a closer look. Have the brass seen it? Not the final, says Miriam. But naturally, they had a hand in it, so to speak. Everyone contributed, the brass most of all. Jollis circles the table, continuing his appraisal. Good bones, he says. And I love what you did with the spleen. Slowly, reverently, he leans in toward the face and gently pushes back the eyelids. He gasps. The eyes glisten, collecting the room's divine light and amplifying it before sending it back in a chromatic gleam. Exquisite, says Jollis. They're going to love it, Mary. Really? Oh, definitely. We're talking major promotion. Miriam tries to hide her excitement. This is just the prototype, of course. Oh? I mean, it's finished, and fundamentally they'll all be the same, but there will be all kinds of variations, different shapes, colors, idiosyncrasies. Because obviously the travelers will want that. It's not like they'd ever declare just one type to be beautiful and then desperately try to imitate it. No, of course not, agrees Jollis. That would be ridiculous. He moves toward the window. Do you want to see where they're going? Miriam freezes, her insides suddenly a flutter. She does want to see, doesn't she? The others have been working so hard and with such secrecy. Finally, she nods, and Jollis pulls back the curtain. Miriam, he says, allow me to present Earth. There in the window is a shining, distant orb so lovely it is almost painful to behold. Crimson fires warm it from within while a yellow sun bathes it in light. Argent clouds swirl over an intricate mosaic of tawny sands and emerald wilds. And everywhere, the sparkling blue of water gathered in vast oceans, rushing madly in rivers, falling from an ethereal sky. Though she should be elated, Miriam feels oddly cold, almost numb. She can't seem to find her voice. But Jollis' expectant gaze is on her. It's magical, she says. Pretty sweet, right? They say it can accommodate up to two billion people. Any more than that would be a disaster. So it's ready to go? Jollis nods happily. Just waiting on the vessel. The vessel. Miriam turns back to look at the body on the table. The lingering doubt within her finally crystallizes into a clear danger a peril against which she might still be able to offer some defense. She begins to shoo Jollis out of the room. Right, she says. The vessel. Almost there. Just one last thing. But you said it was done. Just about, she says. You can't rush these things, after all. Once Jollis has been successfully ushered out, Miriam returns to the body. She takes one last look at the wondrous new world shining in the window. Then she gets to work. Without the ones like you, who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, click Granger.com or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done.